All right, uh, Frank had uh, some comments. I, we had done a section last week, and actually, for some reason, both Frank called me and Matt called me because of our wonderful discussion on forgiveness. And Frank then has come prepared to continue. For you had some comments about our discussion. Yeah, so specifically there is... Uh, in that, in that section, you were talking about the Levitical sacrifices. So there's a couple things about that. And then also there was, more, there was a couple questions. One in particular, um, were the sacrifices meaningless? Did they accomplish their purpose, etc.? And then, um, then there was a lot of discussion on forgiveness, what exactly forgiveness means. Is there a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation? Can you have one without the other? Is there an order that it goes in? And, and maybe, you know, my, my immediate thought was to answer that no, but as, I, as people began to talk, I thought, maybe I'm wrong about this, that, that for some, with some people, actually it may be impossible to have reconciliation, but that doesn't necessarily prevent forgiveness. So I, yeah. Well, in, in the way I usually tend to answer things is... Uh, Rather than saying it's either this one or that one, I'm going to say completely left field. Let's look at it a completely different way. Uh, and so first let's uh, talk about the sacrifices. So you mentioned Jacob Milgram quite a bit, especially in your recent blog. Um, and you kind of went down... About Frank, if you all read uh, about Frank. Well, it sure mentioned me, but uh, I don't think that's what I said in my paper. <laughs> I'm glad you got that much out of it, though. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, the main concerns I had with my paper uh, in particular were um, a few things. One, there's quite a bit of tradition both in early in the early church fathers and in the Jewish uh, scholars as well uh, throughout history, uh, kind of noting that um, the Levitical sacrificial system is um, iconoclastic to the culture that the Israelites came out of, both the Egyptian sacrificial systems and the ancient Near Eastern traditions. That, In other words, if you looked at the clean animals and the unclean animals, they were completely inverted. Uh, and kind of like, they had, I mean, everything they were given, you know, the, the, the creation story of Genesis, the, um, the, the days of the week being given different names and different significance, different festivals, different calendar everything was different and just kind of to completely reprogram their way of thinking about culture. It was to give birth to a new culture. Um, so there's that aspect to be taken into consideration. Now the other thing is, and I believe you mentioned this, that it wasn't until after the golden calf and then uh, the other incidents with... Um, Nadab and Abihu. Yeah, that the Levitical sacrificial system was not defined yet. That wasn't a part of what Israel was expected to do. I mean, Moses originally came down with just commandments, and next time, you know, now he comes back with a lot more than just commandments. And <clears throat> the way that I would generally ap approach the sacrificial system is that this is literally a visceral object lesson that, that's an analogy, it's a metaphor in the language that the people of that culture in that time would have understood. And and what, it, what the metaphor is and what it's trying to teach, I think... Um, is exemplified and made clear if we if we look at a few more details. One one of the points that Jacob Milgram uh, is making in particular that I think we really have to emphasize because this is not how we think 
Atonement and forgiveness are not synonyms. They are two completely different things. Um, and, and a matter of fact, the reason we get this confused is because the word atonement doesn't really occur in the New Testament at all in Greek. Um, what we have are other things. We have lots of metaphors, like we mentioned. We have you know law court metaphor. We have um, reconciliation, redemption, slavery metaphor. There's all kinds of metaphors to talk about the process of what's happening. Now, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, uh, the word atonement, kapur, um, has a very specific meaning. It simply means to make clean. That is literally all it means. Now, if you were to... Uh, and, and Milgram also makes a further point that when you're talking about clean and unclean in the sense of atonement, um, it's never done... It's not the person who's made clean. It's that atonement is made on behalf of a person on the temple, on the holy things, and on the nation as a whole. So what is being made unclean, ultimately, is the temple, the holy things, and the nation. And, and that's what the sacrifices address. Now, the other thing that's been pointed out by many people, and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of obvious once you look at it, is that um, Leviticus is really a manual on how to be right with your neighbor. And for all the oddities and the strange things that occur in it, that's really what it's about. And if you look at, uh, Paul mentioned that there's three intensities of sin uh, that Jacob Bilgram points out. Uh, they're uh, Chet, Avon, and Pasha. The first two, the Chet and Avon, those are what the Levitical sacrifices deal with. And, and those are the ones which are um, either accidental or done out of ignorance of the law, or they're minor enough that you can make <coughs> reparations for what you've done. Right. So these are things like theft, um, ceremonial things like you know, <laughs> um, you know, the monthly cycle and all, all these other things. Paul talked quite a bit in his blog about how really these things all represent life and death in one way or another, uh, whether you're talking about blood or various other things. Uh, but the basic point is that the the things that the Levitical sacrifice deal with are things that you can undo or that are just ceremonial unclean. And if you look at the order of how those sacrifices are designed, the first step is you have to make things right first with who has been hurt by it, um, or if it's you personally because of some ceremonial uncleanness. You do that first. Then you go to God, and then you make the sacrifice, right? And I think the object lesson there is that in order to have right standing with God, you first have to get into right standing with who has been hurt by your sin. I think that's the point that's being made. Now, uh... Paul's already talked quite a bit about the Day of Atonement. The, sig- the significance of the Day of Atonement is that Pasha, this, the egregious, egregious sins like murder and uh, adultery and, and other things like that, um, there's no clear provision in Levitical law on how to deal with those. Um, and it's only by implication, because the way that the, the literature speaks of the Day of Atonement, all sin is placed on that goat that's sent off into the desert. That's the only place that those terrible sins could ever be brought to and taken away from the people. And even there, the significance, it's really about, you know, somehow we can't make this right, so we're putting it into God's hands to deal with. It's kind of the thing there. Um, and then, you know, the, the blood is making the temple clean. And I think what's super important about that to understand is, is when we talk about, you know, why is God made unclean by sin? Well, well, let's think about what was Israel supposed to be, the kingdom of priests. I mean, that sounds familiar to us as well. That's what the church is supposed to be, right? They were to represent God's name to all nations. I mean, they were called Israelites, right? 
they're, they were the people of God. They're representing him. They're his ambassadors. They're his flesh and blood um, created in his image. And so whatever we do, we're, we're doing it in God's name. And uh, it's not just like we, say it, we stand there and we say, uh, I do this in God's name, and though sometimes we do, but everything we do is in God's name because we're in his image, we're part of his kingdom, and we represent him in what we do. And that's what uh, perhaps we bring shame to his name, I think is a good way to picture that. And, and that's what the sacrificial system was intended to do. So the, the question, um, it did accomplish its purposes or were they meaningless, like as in, uh, did they really accomplish anything mystically? And I think, you know, there are things that God instituted, probably similar to communion or um, marriage or, or various other different ceremonies that we have, um, baptism, that whatever might be having mystically isn't just because of something innately in that process of doing it, but because, you know, we're participating in this thing in, in, a, in a way communally. Whether they accomplish their purpose is measured by how well the people understood the object lesson. And perhaps it was not so well. So, I don't know if that... I'm sure there were some people who got it, but overall the history of Israel seemed to be a, a kind of sad in that regard, as the prophets later on said, God doesn't care about this. I guess we've all missed the point. Um, yeah. But... Uh, so that leads into the next thing. So uh, as far as metaphors, as you guys were talking about this and you're, you're talking about forgiveness and reconciliation and the sacrifice, one thing that kind of occurred to me um, in Paul's classes, one of the things I've, I've learned to react to is a law court metaphor when it comes to atonement. You know, Anselm, we like to talk about Anselm. But it occurred to me, if, if Anselm is speaking in law court metaphor, what isn't forgiveness and reconciliation accounting metaphor? I mean, that's accounting language. Aren't we just creating another construct that functions exactly the same way as Roman uh, honor, you know, impugning Roman honor system, uh, Roman law court metaphor? So the question is, well, there's a few things. I mean, one, obviously it's fine to use these metaphors because they're used all over the New Testament. That's fine. I think the problem is when we misunderstand them. And the question is, if we're talking about God, are we picturing that somehow in the mind of God, some, what we do creates a deficit in his head, and following N.T. Wright, you know, I mean, God has the power to declare forgiveness. So this deficit is created in his head. He then chooses to remove that deficit and then move on. And that's necessary for him to be able to move on in relationship with you. That doesn't really make sense, and it's not really, I think, what you see happening. If you look at, say, Jesus and his interaction with Peter and his denial, um, Jesus predicts his denial. Peter does the denial. He realizes it. And Jesus, when when he's speaking to Peter after his resurrection, he doesn't say anything about, hey, I forgive you for doing that. He just says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And... Who the debt is created to, right, if we're, if we're going to use this accounting metaphor, it's not to God, it's to the person who was hurt, right? That's where the deficit was created, and, and that's what the Levitical law tries to show. When you sin against a person, the debt is on their part, and it's up to you to remove that in order to, to restore the relationship with them. Uh, but going beyond metaphor, can we just actually exp- you know, express what process is happening? 
And uh, I guess, you know, at some point everything breaks down to knowledge, but the word I, I kind of came up with is telos, right? There's a purpose, there's an end. God is not, you know, like any, like any parent. We don't have this accounting system in our head when our kid does something stupid repeatedly, uh, where we have to just kind of in our head remove that deficit and then, you know, move on and pretend it didn't happen. No, it, it generates a response in us. We have a goal for our child, you know, whether that's a, a certain, you know, level of accomplishment in life or a certain level of um, good behavior or, or whatever the, the goal is that we have as parents. When our child does something that that violates that telos, we simply figure out what can we do to put that child back on the correct trajectory to maturity. And that's exactly what Jesus did with Peter, right? So he was in denial, and now how do we get Peter back into the telos for what he's going to become in the church? Feed my sheep, right? We immediately move on. And that's the Levitical system. If I steal from somebody, how can I restore that telos of being God's people, being in unity, loving one another, living up to the potential of what God made people to, to be, creating his image and living in fullness of life. You restore the, what you stole, and then you, know, you can continue in that uh, relationship. And so I think the, the question is, uh, or I mean the correct approach is, Rather than looking at this as some kind of closed economic system where we exchange one thing or another, um, I, we just have to realize that everything we do, the way that we perceive the world, um, is, is going to be reformed. We're no longer working in this closed system of checks and balances, which is, I think, part of the, the fallen consciousness. We're to be, be able to move past that and instead have this vision of what uh, you know, God's purpose is. We'll, and we know Christ revealed that very clearly, the way that he lived in the world, and, and even Acts in the, the early church clearly demonstrated that. And I think for the first several hundred years of church history, that's been clearly demonstrated what that is. And so when we come into a situation, whether we harm someone or someone harms us, the question is not, you know, how can I forgive this person in some abstract sense, or how can I reconcile this person in some full sense? It's... The trajectory has turned away from the, the telos. What can I do now to help bring that direction back toward the telos that we have? Right? And, and I think that's the thing. That's, that's the process that's happening, or, or should be happening, is that we are always trying to um, bring about that telos. What is that telos again after that? So the way I would sum it up is just, uh, you know, the, the fullness of life. Um, that we can all, uh, <clears throat> we can all live in God, you know, we can be God's image, represent him, represent his ways. Uh, basically just, you know, to live like Christ. That's what I would say the, the telos is. Um, I don't know how to say that succinctly. I just point, I'll just point to Jesus. Um So there's a few questions. I, I've talked about this with a couple people. Um, so, so again, yeah, so the reconciliation. I don't think that we have to think about it in terms of, like, we're reconciled when, you know, this happens, right? Like, when after this, 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 check, is, this check is checked, this mark is checked. Um, like, there's a set of things that have to happen. I think it's a process. It's a trajectory. You know, I think... 
our understanding of faith as much, and you know, we've we've kind of come to that understanding of faith is not uh, something you're in and out of constantly. You're either 100% faithful or 100% unfaithful. It's, it's a general direction. I mean, we see that in, in the life of all kinds of biblical characters, like David and Abraham. Um, you know, it's clear to tell where you're going, whether you fumble here and there. Um, and I think it's the same way with our, our relationships. It's not, I'm 100% reconciled, because, I mean, what, what's that? I mean, perfect unity? I don't know if that's even possible to achieve. But what, what we can see in our lives and lives around us is, like, are we participating in relationships with people in a way that would steer us toward more toward that image, uh, living out that image of Christ? Um, so rather than looking at it as the set of transactions that are complete, you know, you are now completely in debt, completely free of debt, um, completely disunified with someone, now completely unified with someone. I'm trying really hard to avoid using accounting terms. <laughs> uh, and it's pretty hard. But, uh, yeah, I just, in, instead of thinking about this in transactional sense, thinking about it just as a, a process and a trajectory toward the goal. Not that, not looking whether we've achieved that goal, but whether we're heading in that direction, whether we're, what we're doing is helping to steer in that direction. So, to put it in, like, different terms, it's like it's a way or, like, a path that, that you're, you're walking down. Which yeah. is, is biblical imagery itself, and, and is defines himself as the way. Torah. Yeah. Torah. Yeah, teaching way. In Hodos, in, in Greek, in, yeah, I think the Septuagint. That's how it translate Torah. So I, I think it means a little. Yeah. I, uh, my 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 gist is that what Jesus was saying when he said that is like I am the living law. You know, like, like the law is meant to instruct, right? I mean, that's the point. To show us how to live, and that's why I think you know, like people, if we look at characters like David, uh, King David, he he said things like, "I meditate on your law day and night." You know, he said, you know, he finds life in it, and and I think he did because he had a right understanding of it, right? Because when he's confronted by Nathan, his response is very different than how you know. The Pharisees responded when Jesus would expose something about them. Um, and uh, yet Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures they might thinking you'll find them in life. And I think the difference is how we're looking at it if we're understanding it and using it correctly. You know, I think the, the tendency of the Pharisees was to look at it um, in a very lawyerist way um, to, to figure out exactly what you can and cannot do without looking to the greater purpose, which was it was just to, to steer in the direction of understanding how to perceive relationships, how to value things, uh, which Jesus demonstrated. You know, it, I mean, the Sabbath, right? What's the point of the Sabbath? It's not, it's not to avoid healing people or helping people that have needs. That's not the point of the Sabbath. Um, he could see that, but the, the Pharisees couldn't. So. Yeah, there's a practical, uh, the, the, and that's what, that is pertinent to what we're reading in, in Hebrews, because what he's describing is that, it, I think sometimes, there's two ways of reading this, that 
One way would be to read it in a kind of theoretical and otherworldly, you know, imputed righteousness and that. But what you're describing about both the law and about Christianity, as Christianity as a fulfillment of that understanding of the Levitical law, Levitical law as a practical, worked out way of communities of people getting along, or this community, is that's what Christianity is supposed to be. And so if we're reading Hebrews, in fact, the, the section we, I can't remember, we read it right tonight, but don't forsake the assembling of the saints together. What he's describing then is how is this community of people going to accomplish, you know, be true temple, true priest, true, uh, that in some way there is a an aspect to Christianity that I think often gets missed or passed over, uh, that is, we can, just like we could point to the body of Christ when he was here on the earth, we can point to the body of Christ, the church, and say, oh, there is the functioning body. Yeah, this has nothing to do with what you just said, but for some reason it reminded me of another point that uh, came up in the conversation I had with somebody else. And that is, uh, so with the word forgiveness, uh, I'll, there's just this, a thing a lot of people say, forgive and forget. Right, and that I don't think that's the model that we, that we're uh, we're to follow here. It's not about forgetting that something happened because that kind of invalidates the whole point that I just made. You want to respond to what happened in a way that affects positive change. So it's not about forgetting that something happened. It's that choosing, in spite of what happened, to to repay evil with good for the you know to the end of achieving the telos of, of God. The way I saw it worded was like recently with like forgetting to accuse of any wrong. So while acknowledging situations and real hurt and real pain, choosing to still treat the person as if the wrong doesn't, well, I don't know. It was better whenever it was concise. I take that <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's very complex, you know, and I'm not going to say they have this fully worked out, but I, I think the, you know, the, the general idea is that we're told to be both, you know, as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. I think we have to have a full understanding of exactly what's going on, not to be in any kind of denial about the evil that's happening, um, but still fully willing to engage and and uh, lose out in the scenario because we're choosing to continue to to uh, inject good into those situations. And I'm not saying that's easy. Obviously, it's not. I'm not saying we're going to have 100% success with that because we're not. Um, but if we can at least have the trajectory going in that direction, that's how we can measure if we're being successful or not. In the song that... I'm actually preaching on this psalm on Sunday, so I'm glad we're talking about this because it's getting my wheels turned. But in the psalm that the Hebrews is, or in Hebrews that's referencing back to the in sacrifice and offering you've not delighted, later in there it says, For evils have encompassed me beyond number, my iniquities have over, overtaken me, and I cannot see, and there are more than the hairs on my head, my, and there are more. Then the hairs of my head, my heart fails me. It almost kind of sounds like a Romans 7 kind of situation, like just like reading through this psalm with 
what you've said, the idea of reconciliation, of like moving from that idea of, you know, my iniquities are more than the hairs of my head, our hearts failing us that we're living in an economy of sin and death, but then moving into an economy of forgiveness and deliverance, and that's our deliverance. Like, pretty much everything I've read about this song, like, from other people so far, people saying, like, oh, deliverance from the pit of our bad situations when life doesn't go right, you know, but it almost seems a little bit more serious than that whenever life doesn't go right for others because of us, because we have caused hardship and pain in other people's lives. And that's what we need to be delivered from, ourselves. Yeah, well, and, and you think, you know, with with Israel, their circumstance was, uh, you know, it was religious, it was social, it was judicial, it was a whole bunch of different things. Uh, and what, you know, if we're talking, let's just talk about, say, penal systems that we have in the world. What would be better for forcing uh, somebody who's hurt someone else to understand what they've done better than, say, if you're a thief, you're forced to repay that person directly or to go to prison. Yeah, what you're, by forced, you know, the, the way the Levitical system is set up, you're addressing the victim that you've, that you've hurt. I, I think that's a, a, pretty, a pretty brilliant way of doing it. And, and also... Um, that you know you can't approach God with your sacrifice until you first deal with your neighbor. And again, it's not a perfect system. Obviously, it didn't work well, but uh, well, I, well, that's cheeky. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> well, there was it wasn't a, perfect. There was a system. It was a system. Of people can fail to justice. use that. Yeah, people can fail to use that system correctly. Yeah. It makes one wonder if our, I mean, that's the whole shift. We've gone from a system of restorative justice to just penal, you know, yes. punishing people, yeah. which doesn't do anything. It no. creates criminals. Okay. And it's expensive. A criminal apart from the victim, which you can't do. Yeah. So it's all, I, I don't know the connection, but it would almost seem like that as, uh, that penal substitution and, and systems of retribution that people just seem to, to expect. That would be an interesting study. <laughs> Paul? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I got, I got Friday to go. Uh, uh, and actually, it reminds me. There was also another conversation, uh, Alec, that you you had. Water. Yes, a long yeah, time ago. I was ago. gonna I was gonna ask you about that because they said that you had an answer for it, and I was all like super excited. I won't be that optimistic, but I had a thought that I think may go in the direction of having some kind of understanding. You were talking about the distinction between a king and a priest. Um, was more based. looking for the interconnection between yeah oh yeah why why is there a connection because they seemed like disparate con- concepts okay and my basic response to that was Israel wasn't supposed to have a king right they were jealous yes, of yes that's it that's good so what <laughs> Jesus is doing he's bringing the two disparate things back together here's the model for our kingdom the servant ruler right the the, the not like 
the Gentiles who lorded over them, right? So what he's doing is going back to the original, you know, who was supposed to really be in charge of Israel? Nobody. God was, and who was speaking on behalf of God? The priests were explaining the law to the people. The word of God already handed down. And that's exactly the model you have in the New Testament. I mean, the apostles, the only reason they have any kind of authority in, in a traditional sense over the church is just that they have had the first-hand instruction of Christ and they uh, are the best at interpreting and explaining. And, uh, well, I mean, this would get controversial if we have Catholic listeners, but, you know, ha- you know that hierarchical structure uh, wasn't necessarily part of that design, right? Although it may have developed in other sectors. I won't dwell on that very much. And, and where you have 12 disciples, you have, like, God instructing 12 tribes of Israel inside of the way. There's, like, him yeah. as the king, but then the king is... Um, It's more or less that the apostles and yeah, the, yeah, they're they're, um, they're mediators explaining or, or you know acting on behalf of. I mean, even with Moses, right? Uh, his father-in-law came and said, uh, "This isn't good. You can't deal with every single person's problem. <laughs> Split it up a little bit." When you think about the king as as Yahweh himself versus like you know kingship as only solely relating to David. Yeah then it actually makes a lot of the language within Hebrews make sense because what you have in Jesus is relating more to a new exodus. Yes, yeah. So that's, yeah, Payne's Times Nichols, that makes a lot of sense. That's very it's just it's just like, I mean, this is what's happening throughout all the New Testament. It's like, hey, use that word? Sure, let's pull that one into it. Hey, you use that word? Sure, let's redefine it and pull it in this way. You know, king? Yeah, we can be half kings. Yeah, priests? We've got priests too. Um, ambassadors? we got those. It just everything gets taken up and redefined and reinterpreted into the new culture of, of Christ's church or the kingdom of God, I prefer to say. So that was that was really helpful. That was super simple. Well, Frank, you should have been here to answer that. Uh, I probably wouldn't have thought of it on the spot. <laughs> you know, when you have the time to think about it, and, and you know, when you're not on the spot, but <coughs> that's why we learn in community. Yes. Absolutely. Um, do we want to, do we want to read uh, go through it uh, this section again and uh, and in, in community see what this says? Uh, I'll read the first verse and then uh, the. Therefore, brothers, since Wait, we where are you at? I'm at verse nineteen. Okay. That just happens to be in my Bible where it cuts off, which is a good cut off. The, my, mine in the, uh, it calls this a call to persevere, which by the way, the Psalm 40 that you reference, you know, that whole thing is about perseverance, and so the understanding is that he's probably following Psalm 40 all the way through this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest, over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts cleansed, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Um, a long sentence. Uh, we the the picture is that we can enter through the body of Jesus, and the picture is that Jesus' flesh or Jesus. 
is the curtain. There's a lot of discussion about what that might mean, but I just take it to mean that he's the entryway. The curtain was not necessarily something that blocked, but it also was a means of access. And so Jesus' body is the means of access. Uh, and of course, throughout this, the, the imagery is of heaven and earth being brought together, that we've entered in to the presence of God through the body of Christ. And then we then are constituted as... Uh, you know, this place that is cleansed, that the last half of the sentence, your guilty conscience are cleansed. Uh, what are they cleansed of? Well, we, the writer of Hebrews has said throughout they're cleansed of orientation to death. And that our bodies, I think it, it, it is a reference to baptism. Baptism, the water is life, and so we are cleansed of death through washing with water representative of life and so the picture is of of uh, true access to the presence of God you want to do uh, verse 23 Sharon or as well read until there's a I just read until the sentence ended I think here's actually the end. Read 23 and 20. Read 23 to 25. Okay. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That again, there the at the end there is the time element that the uh, the day, the time that you, he's already told us to that now is the day of salvation. So he's pi- picturing that we've entered into a kind of final age, um, and then if this is the basis, he is going to, to picture hope and faith and love. You know, those three things are typically pictured together. He's going to work this out. He's going to work hope and faith out in some detail. But this really gets at what Frank's talking about. Why? What is the point of the writer of Hebrews? Well, that we might achieve love and that we might do good deeds. Boy, we've passed way beyond any notion of a Lutheran idea of faith without, you know, and a kind of imputed righteousness. And so the way we do this is in and through. We don't quite know what he's referencing or that some of the people, for some reason they're not showing up at the fellowship. They're forsaking the assembling of the saints together. Uh, And you can't do the above if you abandon the fellowship, apparently. Frank, you want to read uh, a sentence starting in 26? For if we willfully persist in sin after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I'm glad you got that one so you can explain it. (laughs) That's not how this works. (laughs) 
Well, the, the, throughout, he's talked about two things come together uh, the, throughout Hebrews. You've got this great salvation. You better be careful. You have this great forgiveness. Don't, you know, or you this great sacrifice, greater temple. And so there is a stronger warning, a stronger idea of, as Christ said, you know, that he he's, brings judgment. And so the light, fire is normally, you know, that's a picture of holiness, a raging fire that will consume, uh, but it's also a consuming fire. If you can't get saved by Jesus, just what do you think you're going to get saved by? I mean, this brings up the whole thing of the Azazel goat but we don't need to go there. And that is that the Azazel goat, I think, is connected to hell. That where the Azazel goat is loaded down with sin and the place that sins are taken is ultimately to the pit. That's actually, you know, the the picture ultimately is, I think, what Jesus is referencing. So the purpose of the fire that I think the imagery is that something is destroyed there. All right, uh, Maisie, you want to do verse 28 and 29? When you and you have rejected Moses' law, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has counted the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was I, I mean, I, I don't think there's any question that can you fall away? It sure seems like it from the book of Hebrews. That once you've tasted the heavenly gift and then you should trample the Son of God underfoot, there is no redemption left for you. I don't know what that might what that might look like, other than to say, well, it certainly seems to be a possibility uh, that uh, that we can sin against the Holy Spirit, and apparently that is a deadly sin. Uh, and this is what apparently these people, or at least he's warning them, they're apparently in the face of persecution. You know, this is going to become a controversy in the early church is what do you do with people that became apostate? Uh, And so uh, the uh, early church is going to uh, divide on this. Some will say, well, we'll take them back in under certain conditions, and others says no. So... I forgot what did you call... What did they call the apostate? that they brought back in. Uh, well, that's what... I, that's what I was asking for. Uh, let's go on with uh, Faith. You want, Or did we skip? Or uh, Rachel, you want to do verse 30? Uh, well, that, that's the last verse. Thir- go ahead and do it 30 and 31. Are you know? Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord repays the people. 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, maybe that doesn't need commentary other than to say that uh, there is a godly fear. And that godly fear in some way displaces uh, a false kind of fear. So the fear of death. And that's what's talked about throughout Scripture. You can get fear of God right, there's a sense in which other things fall into place. Uh, our tendency is to not know to know what to fear. We fear the wrong things. We want to secure ourselves. This is what the picture is in the Old Testament, that the Jews would secure themselves against the Assyrians in uh, Isaiah 8 and 28 uh, the answer to that is you don't need to fear the Assyrians and they were turning though to necromancy and worship of the dead and rejecting true worship of God and the prophets said you need to fear God more than you fear the Assyrians alright any comments questions I think the forgiveness stuff is helpful.